Amen, and good to be with you today on this Mother's Day. Uh, Find your way in your Bible to the classic Mother's Day book, Zechariah. We're going to be in chapter 12. Um, You know, we're getting towards the end of the Minor Prophets series, and I know some of you are saying mercifully, and others are saying, no, let's keep going. But nevertheless, in a few weeks, we're going to be done. Um, We have spent 24 weeks in the Minor Prophets so far since last fall. And do you know what is the one subject that we have thus far surprisingly totally ignored? I mean, there's probably more than one, but this is, this is one that you might think we would get to, but we haven't gotten to, the end times. Have you noticed that? Like if I told you we're going to spend 24 weeks studying prophecy in the Bible, you might think that would be the first thing we would get to, right? But th- thus far, we have not had to talk about it, but all that changes today. We're going to have to talk about it today, and I know it's Mother's Day, but listen, if there's one thing all mothers agree on, it's that they love eschatology. Um, I'll give you a second to Google that word, but, uh, you know, so happy Mother's Day. It is my gift to you, mothers. Um, so in a handful of places, uh, the Bible talks about the end times. So you think about books like Revelation, books like Daniel, Zechariah is going to address it here. Uh, it doesn't come up as often as you might think, but it does come up. Um, It's called apocalyptic prophecy, and before we get into what Zechariah specifically says, I just want to give us a little bit of context and how we should think about and maybe approach these parts of the Bible. I want to share a story and maybe just a few thoughts about how we missed it and how we could do a little better. So there's a writer and theologian and a professor named Brian K. Blunt who teaches classes on interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, He loves to start his classes with this question. He says to his students, open up the book of Revelation, and you're welcome to do this. Open up the book of Revelation and turn to the part about the rapture. Now, if you don't know what the rapture is, uh, what the rapture is is this concept that Jesus is going to come back and instantly take all faithful followers to be with him in heaven. And so the dead will rise first, and then the living believers will ascend up into the clouds and meet Jesus. Uh, And there's a lot of arguments amongst Christians about this event, about the rapture. Specifically, one of the big arguments is this, is will the rapture happen before, during, or after the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, the seven years of suffering uh, that are going to come to the earth? And I know that may to you sound like theological minutiae, because it is, But this, you have to understand, is a debate that has split churches at times in our country, okay? Now, lucky for you and I, we live in an age where uh, the great theologian Kirk Cameron came along and famously (laughs) settled all of those debates with his decisive theological treatise, The Left Behind Movie, um, which I assume was based off the Left Behind books, which clearly explains that the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture, which is why none of us should ever get on a plane with a Christian pilot, because, I mean, it might include us, but just in case it doesn't. So this idea, the rapture, right? A fixture of any discussions about the end times. And this theologian who teaches this uh, class in the book of Revelation, he says, well, Revelation is about the end times. So naturally, open up your books and turn to the part where Revelation talks about the rapture. A few of you know this, but that is a trick question. 
There is not a verse in Revelation that talks about the rapture. Did you know that? There's not. In fact, the word rapture doesn't even appear in the Bible. The word or the concept of the rapture, it doesn't come from Revelation. It comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 where Paul says something about Jesus' return. Now, you may know this, 1 Thessalonians is one of the earliest books of the New Testament written, written in around 50 AD, and it was the first of Paul's letters that he wrote to any churches. Now, he mentions this concept there, and then he drops it, and he doesn't talk about it in the same form for the rest of his ministry, so you won't find it in any of his other letters to churches, right? So at least we would have to say, when it comes to the Apostle Paul, this concept of the rapture is not a fixture of his teaching teaching to the early church. It is a point, but not a major point that he hammers home. Revelation, on the other hand, was written by the Apostle John, totally different guy. That was written in 95 AD, so 45 years after the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in it, he talks about this concept of a tribulation that's coming, a seven-year period of intense suffering for the people of God, but he doesn't ever mention the rapture. Here's why I bring this up. Fast forward to today. Here's my question. Why would believers in Jesus who live today allow themselves to argue about when the rapture happens in relation to the tribulation? Why would this, of all things, be a point of contention? Especially considering that in 50 AD, it is clear that Paul does not have a comprehensive theology of the end times that has not emerged yet. And considering the fact that in 95 AD, where there probably was a little bit more comprehensive theology of the end times, John doesn't even bring it up. And so why would we, 2,000 years later, allow this issue to cause division among people who love Jesus? Can I answer my question with a radical assertion that perhaps, at times, we Christians have missed the point? <laughs> that perhaps, when it comes to the end times, uh, we miss the point a little bit. And it's not anyone's fault. I mean, I, like you, you read this stuff, and it is fascinating to read apocalyptic literature. It's complicated. It's hard to understand. I think a lot of really well-intentioned people have dived into apocalyptic literature with a hope to understand what God is saying, but they've overlooked this truth that we all have to come to terms with. Here's the truth. Sometimes... We overreach when we read scripture and we rush past what God is actually saying to find answers to questions we'd like to know, but the writers of scripture never set out to give. Do you see your face in that at all? Because I, I see my face in that. Ugh. There's so many things I'm curious about, and yet the Bible doesn't address so many things. It addresses what it wants to tell us. And sometimes I rush past what it wants to tell me because I'm like, oh, well, what about this? And I can get caught up in my ideas of what it should say. I think every human with a Bible does this at times. This is why I would say when it comes to studying the scripture, humility is the first and the most important tool that we could ever carry to the pages of this text. The humility that says we don't know it all. The humility that says I'm going to make some wrong assumptions. The humility that says I'm reading from my own personal bias especially when we're talking about apocalyptic prophecy. Now, I keep using that word, apocalyptic. It is from the Greek word apocalypse, right? It means to reveal or uncover. 
So the purpose of the scripture is to maybe think of it as like uncovering, clearing away a little bit of dirt on something. It doesn't clear everything away. It doesn't perfectly reveal it, but it just tells us a little bit about God's plan for the future. The writers of scripture do not do this because we're curious, because of course we're curious, but the writers of scripture are not doing it because we're curious. They're writing that way because they're teaching us a very important truth that despite what it looks like right now, eventually everything will be united under the reign of a triumphant Jesus. That is the point of apocalyptic prophecy. And so the purpose is not, in fact, to figure everything out. The purpose is to give us, as God's people, some hope that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord of Lords. That's what the apocalyptic writers are trying to do. So why is Zechariah writing? Well, he's writing because life is hard for the Hebrews. This is post-exile. They're trying to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They're being persecuted. It's very difficult. And the temptation that God's people were struggling with is to just keep your head down, just go on about your business, don't cause a fuss, just mind your own business. And Zechariah writes these prophecies that are full of this incredible language and this fascinating stuff. And the point is this, would you have confidence God is in fact in control? Would you have confidence that he is up to something here and you are a part of it and that that would embolden the, the believers to live for God today? Isn't that similar, if you know the background of the book of Revelation, to what John is doing? 95 AD, the emperor Domitian is on the throne in Rome. He is cracking down on the early church. Rome, at that moment, 95 AD, looks like an unstoppable, unconquerable force that would last forever. Now, we know how that ends, but John didn't. John was writing to people in that situation, and the temptation in that situation is just keep your head down because these enemies of Jesus, they have so much power compared to what we have. And so John writes Revelation to secretly teach that, in fact, it's Jesus, the crucified Jesus, who's Lord of all, not Emperor Domitian. That's why he writes Revelation. And at the end of it all, you're going to see Jesus reign. So that's what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. And for about 1,800 years, for about 1,800 years, this is how God's people primarily received apocalyptic prophecy. Now, something happened about 180 years ago that forever changed what we do with these passages of Scripture. You may not know this, but 180 years ago, Irish theologian named John Nelson Darby comes along, and he starts developing some theological ideas that eventually become a concept that we call today dispensationalism. You may have heard that word, dispensationalism. You may not know exactly what it means, but I promise you, you kind of understand the concept. It is uh, just implicit in so much of what we do with these texts. It's, it's less than 200 years old, but it goes like this. Dispensationalism would suggest that what if like books like Revelation or Daniel and a few of these other passages like Zechariah, what if they were not talking symbolically? What if they were actually talking literally? This is what uh, John Nelson Darby started to propose. So what if when it refers to Israel, it's referring to the country? Like that country, it, when he was developing these, these ideas, it wasn't even a country. But in 1948, Israel became a country again. So what if all of those prophecies about Israel are referring to the actual nation and God's plan for Israel is distinct 
from his plan for the Gentile church. That's what dispensationalism would propose. What if the temple had to be rebuilt before Jesus returned? What if it means the literal temple? All those verses about the temple are not about us as believers, but it is about the literal temple. What if there's a literal antichrist, a literal mark of the beast that was put on your forehead, a literal seven years of tribulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so if you've read like the Left Behind books, which were very popular, full disclosure, I have not read them. Um, I did see the movie, uh, One Star. <laughs> Um, but I haven't read the books. But what those books are trying to capture is a dispensational picture of the end times. That's kind of the, the perspective that they're coming out, where every bit of imagery in apocalyptic prophecy has a literal application and a concrete fulfillment. And somehow, Kirk Cameron is at the center of it all. Um, now, I was talking to Caitlin Garrett, who's one of uh, just great theologians on our staff, and I told her, I have cut four Kirk Cameron jokes out of the sermon. And she said, it's still too many. You have too many. <laughs> anyway. Now, I, I, I suspect you could tell by how I'm talking. Um, I personally, I'm not particularly dispensational in my orientation. Dispensationalism is a movement that has done some incredibly good things for the American church. There's just some incredible positives there. Um, I love studying end times through a dispensational lens, but I also see some other ways to look at these verses. Dispensationalism is definitely a legitimate biblical interpretive option. There are some others, some more covenantal ones, is the, uh, the other word, that are legitimate ways to interpret this passage. I, my goal is not to persuade you to my interpretation of these end times prophecies. My goal is to get you to study it for yourself. That's a big part of what we're trying to do here as a church is to teach you, hey, you can do this stuff. It's not like geniuses are the ones who are studying the Bible, clearly. Um, like, just get into it. If it's cu curious to you, get into it. See some of the streams of theology and some of the options that we have for interpretation. You don't need someone like me telling you what to believe. You were given the scriptures, right? And you have the Holy Spirit too. So get into it, study it for yourself. The only reason I'm bringing this up is I want to make this observation. In less than 200 years, this idea of dispensationalism has become the assumption for many believers about how we should deal with apocalyptic prophecy. And a lot of people are dispensational without knowing that's what they are. They just read this type of scripture from that lens. And that has been some good, and that has at times been some really weird uh, things that have happened because of that. Some of you might be old enough to remember this. Uh, There's a man named Edgar Wisenant, and in 1988, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. Now, the funny part about that is he wrote a follow-up called Final Shout in 1989, and it was about how the rapture was going to be in 1989. And so, uh, it, we don't always get it right, right? You know, I know that's a silly example, but sometimes like that sort of stuff comes out of kind of this dispensational lens. And there are a lot healthier versions of dispensational out there than that. But what I want us to see is that for about 1,800 years as God's people, we would read this sort of prophecy and we wouldn't read it to figure out exactly how it was going to unfold. That wasn't the bias. We wouldn't read it for that reason, but God's people would read apocalyptic literature to find hope for our time, not to figure out the code for the future time, right? But to find hope for our time. That is the primary purpose behind why it was given. 
I think that's why John wrote Revelation. I think that's why Zechariah writes what he's going to write. And as we read it, I just want us to keep that in mind. Would you just keep in mind, Zechariah is looking at God's people in his day. And he's not giving them a code to figure out, but he's looking at the demoralized, hopeless people of God. They're longing for a future that they don't believe will ever come. And into that moment, Zechariah steps, struggling to have hope in the times they lived in. And he drops on them some pretty powerful images about God's work. Look at chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 1. Here's what Zechariah writes. A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, who forms the human spirit within a person, declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nation. The clans of Judah will say in their heart, the people of Jerusalem are strong. Because the Lord Almighty is their God. Now you can look at history. It does not appear that day has happened yet. This is a picture of Jerusalem as a rock, standing against literally every single other nation who had come against it. When at this point, when Zechariah is writing, it barely even has walls at this point. He continues, look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Who's he talking about there? The one, on whom, or the one whom they have pierced. That's Jesus, right? So he's mixing in messianic prophecy, mourning for the one they pierced. On that day, look at, uh, sorry, 13 verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. So we know what that day is. This is the cross. So what's interesting about end times prophecy, and I think this is frequently the case, is in the Old Testament, Zechariah is weaving together prophecy about the coming Messiah and the end times. And it's all in the same passage, and it's all kind of mixed together. And so this is why some people were confused when Jesus is talking about, well, I'm going to come back later. And they're like, no, 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 I thought it all happened concurrently. Was it like you're here, so do it, whatever it is, do it. Um, but the prophetic language is not always crystal clear, and sometimes it will look like things are happening at the same time, when in fact, we can look back in history and realize, no, Jesus came once, and then he left, and then he's coming again, um, and, and those two things are distinct. Uh, look at chapter 14. Turn over to chapter 14. We'll start in verse 3. Listen to this. Then, talking about that day again, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. I'd like to see that. 
That's kind of a cool image, right? He describes this moment where God is standing on the Mount of Olives. And what's interesting is the people are being attacked. The people of God are being attacked. But they don't have to fight because God is there, because of what God is doing. Skip down a little ways to chapter 14, verse 12. Look at this. I guess this is how God fights. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They'll seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah, too, will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys and all the animals in those camps. I mean, that is some scary Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of stuff right there, right? This God who's fighting against all who come to Jerusalem, making the flesh melt off their bones. What an image. Look at verse 16. Then the survivors from all nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will uh, have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicted on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be punishment, the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that did not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's a glimpse, it's a picture of this God who is defending his people in such a way that is convincing to all the nations. And they go up again and again to worship God after what they've seen. Interesting. We're left with a lot of questions at this point, aren't we? About what Zechariah is talking about. I mean, it appears that he's talking about some things that haven't happened yet, right? He's talking about some messianic things, and we see that some of those have happened. But he's also talking about some things that seem like they have yet to happen. It appears that he's talking about some specific places and events, Um, He's talking about naming mountains and cities and all that sort of stuff. Like, uh, we don't know for sure if he's meaning those in a literal sense or if he's meaning them in some other way. Like, when he talks about Jerusalem, is he talking about the literal city or is he just referring to the kingdom of God and his people? Um, There's some precedent for that in in the Bible. Like, uh, you know, the Bible talks about the temple of God. The New Testament writers take that and they apply that to us. As people who believe in God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is in us. And so we are called in the New Testament the temple of the living God, right? So when he talks about God defending Jerusalem, that could be metaphorical or it could be concrete. We don't know for sure. So we're left with a lot of questions. And there's a couple of approaches that our mind might want to take. One approach when we read stuff like this is to start dissecting the minutiae, you know? Start thinking about, well, what's that plague going to be? I mean, there's stuff in our world that actually is, you know, maybe it's Ebola. It could be that. There's all sorts of chemical warfare, scary stuff that maybe, it's, maybe that's what he's talking about. Maybe we live in a day where that sort of plague could happen. That's one option. Can I suggest that there's another option in... in my opinion, a better option. What if we look at these texts 
and start learning about the relationship between God and his people, not just learning about the end times. Like as you read these, do you hear the security that the people of God have in these passages? Like, like the people of God are not free from conflict, are they? Right? Like they're not free from trouble. People are attacking them, but their God is the one that's fighting for them. They're not fighting for themselves. God is fighting for them and purifying them and defending them. And it's not because the people are so great or the people have it all figured out. It's because God is just that trustworthy and just that powerful. Do you see how really what these passages are describing is not plagues, but what they're describing is a God who is Lord of all, fully capable, and fully worthy of your trust. That's what he's getting at there. And we can let our imagination run and start thinking about plagues and mountains splitting, or we can let our imagination run about this God who fights for us and allow that to change our behaviors today. And I think one of the big challenges with apocalyptic prophecy is, is we can study it in detail and still manage to miss the point for why it was given to us, right? Of course we're curious. Of course we're curious about how it's going to all end. Of course we want to know all these details about what he's talking about. But the most important thing for our soul is not the details of the end times. That doesn't do much for our soul. It's the character of the God who exists outside of time. That is what our soul needs to know that God. And I think that's why Zechariah is giving this to these people. Because he wants them to know this is a God who will fight for you. So get back there and keep building that temple. That was the application to this sermon. You know, these are passages where I think it's real easy, if you know the metaphor, it's easy to, to miss the forest for the trees when it comes to apocalyptic prophecy. Um, it's tempting to do that. And so I want to suggest maybe a few things that just for me stand out. If we think about these as primarily passages that help us understand our relationship with God, here's some things that maybe we would pull out of them. I, this applies to Zechariah. I think you could drag this into Revelation and some of these other passages about the end times too. Here's the first one. End times prophecy was given to us so we'll understand it gets better. It gets better, regardless of how it looks right now. And you will note, most end times prophecy, Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, they all were written when it looked really bad for the people of God. And so they're written to say, regardless of how it looks right now, God is still at work. God is redeeming. Something is unfolding and you are caught up in it. That doesn't mean there's not going to be hard moments, but all of those hard moments, those tribulations are part of this greater arc of redemption that God is working out on earth. That's what you're in the middle of. You're in one of those tribulation moments. And at the end of it all, what you're going to do looking back at the end times is realize that the tribulation was the temporary thing and the redemption was the permanent thing. That's what he's teaching us. Here's a second one. End times prophecy, it teaches us that the lordship of our crucified Jesus is greater than the lordship of those who have power on earth. And even though our times are pretty good compared to Zechariah's, boy, do we need this lesson today, right? 
At every point in human history, there was an empire. At every single point, there was an empire, a Babylon, a Rome, an America. There was always this unstoppable force that looked, had so much money and so much power and so much military might, it looked like that they would last forever. And what happened? Just like Babylon, their times came to an end, right? And so the reality of empire, of power on earth, right, is that humans and nations and empires, we just seem powerful. We're never actually powerful. We just seem powerful for a minute. It's an illusion that we kind of manufacture and we just look powerful for a minute. But end times prophecy reminds us that the power of Babylon is an illusion. It will not last. And when it is done, do you know what will still be there? The kingdom of God and his people. That's the thing that has persisted for over 2,000 years, right? Despite all the rise and fall of all the many nations. That's what he's teaching us. Here's another thing. I think end times prophecy reminds us that humans are eternal. I don't think the prophets were, were saying, hey, let me tell you about something that's going to happen 10,000 years from now, and you'll never see it. But it's cool. Like, I, I don't think that's what they were doing. The question that sometimes we get obsessed about is, is it going to happen in my days? Like, will I see Jesus return in my days? That's what the 88 reasons why Christ will return in 1988, that's what that is about. It's wrestling with that question. It's a very mortal question that treats us as, human, as humans as mortals. That's not what we are. It's very focused on this life. But here's what I want you to think about. All of it, you will see happen. 100% of it, you will see the return of Jesus. Absolutely. Now, I don't say that because I have some secret knowledge about the date. I'm saying that because I have knowledge about you. The Bible teaches us that you, like every other human, is eternal. You will live forever, right? And so this new heaven and new earth that God's going to create, it is very real, and you are going to see it unfolding. And that's why Scripture encourages you to live in light of that reality that death is not your end, but there's a, a whole nother eternal life after that to live in light of that reality. We don't have to worry about missing a thing. We don't have to figure it all out before it happens because we're going to see it unfold right before our very eyes is what Scripture teaches us. Most importantly, I think when we read end times prophecy, we need to see this. End times prophecy teaches us that what we do now matters. And if we don't get that lesson from it, we have totally missed the point. End times prophecy is teaching us that what we do now matters. That there are things that we can do that can align with our future that align with Jesus, that align with his values, that align with the kingdom that he is establishing. And those are the things that are going to last eternally. And so when Zechariah is, is writing to these people, he, he's writing, he's basically saying, listen, it may look dumb now. It may seem so foolish to trust God in this moment. It may seem like the enemies of God have so much power and we have so little. But I want you to know that's not the case. What you do now matters, and there is coming a day when he will have all the power, when the end times will happen, and so live as if they're now, and start stepping into that new heaven and new earth today. It's a powerful message for struggling people. How do we do that? 
Remember the beginning of Zechariah? We talked about this last week. He says, return to God, he'll return to you. That's what he says. To these discouraged, demoralized people, he says, hey, we're about returning to God. Despite how it may look, this is what we're about. Uh, and he says, do that basically in two ways. He, he tells them to resist those who oppose God, and he tells them to keep building the temple. Now, that's a very concrete thing, uh, but if you just think about it in broad strokes, what he's teaching them is God has a plan, so resist and build. Resist and build. That was very important for the people living in Palestine back in Zechariah's day. Listen, we have a much better situation, don't we? We have a much better situation than they had back in Zechariah's day. But I, I, I would suggest this message is still relevant. Resist and build. It looks a little bit different for us because of the times we're living in. But it's saying, hey, what you do matters. So would you resist and build? Resist those things that do not reflect the kingdom values. We know what the kingdom values are, and there are all sorts of things that are opposed to the values of the kingdom. We've mentioned them time and time again, justice, mercy, compassion, these things the prophets are talking about. So resist those things that do not reflect the kingdom values. In any way you find them, resist them. And build, build those things that reflect the new heaven, the new earth, united under the reign of a triumphant Jesus. Step into that future together and step into it now. Don't bide your time. Don't fly under the radar. Don't just skate through this life. But dare to dream of this new heaven and new earth that you will one day see. And everything you've done to contribute to it will last. And nothing else will. It's quite a dream. The apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, I, I like it. I think it's worth meditating on. I want to close with my favorite picture of the end times. Uh, this is from Revelation 21. I think the Apostle John really captures something here that is not just a prophecy of something that will happen, but it really is a longing. Tell me if these words don't sit in your heart in some way. He writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Who is that he's talking about? That's us, right? We're the bride of Christ. You know, the church, the lame, messed up, broken down, hardly ever gets it right church, us. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy. They're true. That is our future. 
And the application of that verse is this. Resist the old order of things. It is temporary. It is, its power is an illusion. Things that result in death, that result in mourning, that result in crying, that result in pain. Resist those things with every fiber of your being and build Build the new, where this loving God dwells amongst us. Build that with him. That is the point of apocalyptic prophecy. Don't fly under the radar. Don't bide our time. Don't just try to get through this life and get as much power as we can get. Live for that end. No matter how it looks in the moment, live with that confidence that God's kingdom, it really, really is coming, and we really will see it. So resist and build because it matters. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that we have a future. We thank you that no matter how it looks in this moment, no matter how it looks to us, that we all will taste this. We thank you that we can start now and that we can step into this, that we can resist those old order things that we can step into this new reality where you dwell amongst us. Would you give us courage in the midst of whatever we're facing because we know the end? Would you give us patience in the midst of whatever we're facing because we know the end? And would you lead us to dramatic acts, subversive acts that usher in this new heaven and new earth with you?